This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. For some, this is the quintessential sound of the summer. While you may not be a fan of the heart-pumping, adrenaline-boosting feeling of a roller coaster's twists and turns, for others, it's the best part of the warmer months or even a core memory. Hey there, this is Lester from Colorado. I remember my first... Uh, Greatest memories as a young boy was uh, riding on the Vortex coaster in my hometown here in Pencilton. We would uh, ride the coaster and just just let it ride. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here. This is Ruth from Annapolis. My mother was a roller coaster freak. She loved them so much. And her biggest joy was when I turned seven, I am now 83, at seven, I was tall enough to go on the roller coaster with her. And that made her so happy because before, my father wouldn't go, and she had to go by herself. So that's my comment about roller coasters, and they've been a lifetime joy. Lester, Ruth, thanks for those messages. Now, even though roller coasters are a fond memory for many of you, recently two roller coaster incidents hit the headlines. Over the 4th of July holiday, coaster riders at a Wisconsin festival were stuck upside down for about three hours after a mechanical failure. And last weekend, a North Carolina man spotted a crack in a roller coaster beam after his family had just been on the ride. So how safe are roller coasters? What makes us love them or hate them? And what's next for coaster engineering, and innovation. Today, we're discussing all things roller coasters, and we'll hear about your favorite ones. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Buckle in. We've got a lot to get to after this break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Morgan Stanley. Inclusion is fuel for innovation. On Access and Opportunity, an award-winning show from Morgan Stanley, they take you inside the companies at the intersection of building equity for their communities and creating business solutions in overlooked areas of the market, from closing the women's sports pay gap to leveling the playing field in the music industry. Follow Access and Opportunity wherever you listen. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our first guests. I'm here with Francine Gonzalez, the chair of ASTM International's Committee on Amusement Rides and Devices. ASTM creates safety standards that are widely followed by amusement parks. She's also the chief experience officer at Whitewater, a leading water park manufacturer. Francine, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me, Jen. Also with us is Jonathan Wooker. He's an engineer for the Gravity Group. That's a wooden roller coaster design firm. Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Yes, absolutely. Thank you again for having me. So Francine, let's start with that safety aspect. How are roller coasters regulated? Well, it's probably a very complicated question, but I'll try to answer it simply. Um, All of the different states in the United States all have a regulation, with the exception of two states, Wyoming and Nevada. So every single state has a regulation related to amusement rides and devices. 
Uh, in many of those cases, those regulations are referencing safety standards that were developed by the industry alongside regulators. So these are the generally accepted industry standards, best practices, and, and really kind of those, those basics of how do you operate, how do you maintain, how do you inspect a ride, and making sure that it's been designed uh, very carefully to be safe. So, so generally, the regulation should call out the standard, and then that standard gets applied by the owner and the operator of those rides. What about carnivals where rides aren't permanent? They're, they're transported, they're dismantled, and then put back together again. Yeah, so uh, carnival rides or the mobile amusement industry is a very different kind of a set of set of rules. So one is that they still follow the same standards that we all apply from the design, from the operation, maintenance, and inspection. But what is different is that these are rides that are dismantled and then reconstructed in every single venue. In every state that they go to, if there's a regulation in that state, then they follow the regulation of that state. So if you have an amusement ride that shows up and it came from Florida but went to Pennsylvania, whatever the rules are in Pennsylvania, they will apply those there. They may require an inspection. They may require a document review and making sure that the ride is in the proper condition before it opens to the public. And then they'll be issuing an operating permit. So while fixed rides have this similar thing, they, they go through that process every year with their local regulation. For those that are having mobile rides, those mobile rides are going to be getting an inspection in a different state using different rules. So it, it is a little bit tougher on, on those folks that operate it. But you can know well assured that there are uh, robust regulations that are protecting. Uh, let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from Sam in Princeton, New Jersey. One of my favorite things in the world is riding roller coasters. And one of the things that you guys have discussed on air recently is that there have been a lot of accidents on roller coasters lately. Despite this, they're still like highly engineered pieces of machinery, and your odds of death are 1 in 750 million. And what's reassuring about that is you're thousands of times more likely to drown in a bathtub, which is extremely unlikely. Another thing that is why people don't die on roller coasters is because of block zones. A block zone is a series of tracks that only one train may occupy at a time. Beginning or end of a block zone is a brake run, chain lift, or launch, or something capable of stopping the train. Now, Sam, thanks for that message. Sam is citing a statistic there about roller coaster deaths from the International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. Jonathan, Sam is clearly a fan with some knowledge about your craft. What are some of the safety measures and sensors we should know about that are used in roller coasters today? Yeah, so he's exactly right that roller coasters have block zones, which are different zones. Whenever you're operating with multiple trains on the same track, we have a section of brakes periodically throughout the ride that will prevent one train from moving into the next section if that next section is occupied by another train. So that's one of the safety features that we have. Uh, of course, we always, as engineers, design everything with safety factors. And also, whenever there's a safety critical system, we incorporate redundancy so that if a part were to fail, uh, there's a backup for that part. Um, one of the things that a lot of people talk about, we do wooden roller coasters, and a lot of people say, oh, they're so rickety, and that clink, clink, clink sound as you go up the hill, it just terrifies me. Well, that clink, clink, clink sound is actually the sound of one of our very important safety systems, the anti-rollback, which, if the coaster ever lost power or you needed to stop the train suddenly, 
it would prevent that train from rolling back down the lift hill and into the station. So we're very careful to install systems all throughout the ride to both prevent anything from, um, you know, any abnormal events from occurring, but then also putting sensors around the ride to detect if an abnormal event occurs. If you see a ride that's shut down, uh, it generally means that our safety systems are working exactly as intended. The sensors flagged that something was abnormal happened and said, hey, I'm not going to let you start this ride back up until you go check it out and tell me that it's okay. Well, talk us through that incident in Wisconsin last week where some riders at a county festival were stuck on a roller coaster, eight of them upside down for up to three hours. How does something like that happen? Yeah, I, I, something like that. I mean, I don't know the specifics of that exact situation, but I can talk generally that, um, you, you know, our goal as engineers is to make sure that if an incident does happen, our number one goal is to make sure an incident never happens. But as engineers, we need to think about what could go wrong. And if something does go wrong, if perhaps a wheel comes loose and gets jammed and, and catches the ride vehicle upside down, um, we need to make sure that th- that failure occurs in a safe state. So uh, a lot of times you'll see on roller coasters when we install braking systems, those brakes, the, the power keeps the brakes open. So if there was ever a loss of power, the quote-unquote failure would be uh, failing in a safe state where those brakes are closed. And so when I look at that incident with the rider stuck upside down, um, of course I'm struck by the need for a robust evacuation procedure to be in place um, and the operational constraints that are necessary to evacuate people safely. But I see that no one was injured and that the ride failed in a safe state. So, you know, that, that's my impression as an outsider in our industry looking at, at that event. Well, Francine, six states don't have any regulatory oversight for amusement parks. That's according to the Global Association for the Attractions Industry. Uh, those states are Alabama, Mississippi, Montana, Nevada, Wyoming, and Utah. So what happens there? Um, well, sure, Jen, I'll answer that question. But I want to add something to what Jonathan just said. And, you know, it, when it comes to rides... Sometimes people see these stories where, oh, these people were upside down and they were on this ride for a period of time. I think what they don't always understand is that the ride actually was functioning correctly. There was a fault of some sort and the ride said, let's stop. That's a safety feature. And I think that's a good thing. What happens in those states that don't have regulatory oversight for amusement parks? Well, um, actually, the good news is recently four of those six states have actually passed regulation, and now they have regulations in place for, for amusement rides and devices. So the only two standouts right now are Nevada and Wyoming. And I do know that Nevada has been looking into this and finding a way to be able to do uh, to execute on this. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I'm actually very grateful to IAPA. That's the Amusement uh, Ride Association. And what they did is they actually made sure they were advocating in each of those states to try to pass regulation to make sure that we had kind of this consistency of regulation in every single state. 
But what happens in those states? I'll, I'll first start with Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming doesn't have a lot of amusement rides. And so with that, I, I can see where perhaps a government is saying, why do we need a regulation if we don't have the rides in place? So, But where there are rides, you want to make sure that those uh, those park operators, they are following the ASTM standards. They're widely available, and they, they give you the basics of what you need to do every day. And they're, they're consistent. As for Nevada, Nevada has a lot of different rides and devices, especially in Las Vegas. And so I do know many of those uh, companies that are operating there, they're, they're high-quality companies, and they're voluntarily following the standards. I do know that many of them also use independent inspectors. So those independent inspectors are applying the same standards and making sure that uh, that those rides are safe. And so that's that's the good news. If you're if you don't have regulation, you want to know that those operators are voluntarily using the standards. I'm curious to hear from you, Jonathan, how you think about all of the people at play to get to get a ride up and running. Um, there's engineers, manufacturers. There's the ride operators. There are park managers. How do you think about the human factor in all of this? Oh, right. It's certainly when you're talking about these big multi-million dollar construction projects, there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of people involved. I think from a regulation standpoint, the most important thing for me as an engineer is that states are consistently applying the ASTM guidelines in order to make sure that the rides are designed, operated, audited, and incidents are reported according to the guidelines that the industry has put together. Um, I'm actually a volunteer at ASTM. I represent our company there. And one thing that I think um, is important to mention is that the U.S. is really the global leader in amusement standards development. And part of that is due to the ASTM framework and the agility with which we are able to update and respond uh, when changes in our industry occur. Um, in countries overseas, um, a lot of those amusement standards are updated at a national level at a much slower pace. So actually, members of the amusement industry internationally, ride designers, park operators, um, even in, you know coaster enthusiasts and, uh, who are, have technical experience, we all gather together and put aside our competition to focus on what is the latest and greatest best practice in our industry for keeping people safe. And we codify that. And if when the U.S. code gets updated, other countries adopt those updates into their codes later as their updates happen. And so to me, having that consistent global framework and participation from all different people in our industry is key to making sure that at every moment we're using state-of-the-art best practice for new rides that we design. We're discussing all things roller coasters. When we come back, we hear from a thrill engineer about what happens to our mind and body when we take a terrifying ride on a coaster. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. 
what does it mean to be Black in America? And NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the discussion by adding a new voice. Joining us now is Brendan Walker. He's a thrill engineer and the director of Studio GoGo. That's a design company. Brendan, welcome to the program. Hi, Jen. Brendan, you know, we're talking about the mechanics and the safety side of roller coasters, but you engineer thrill. What does that mean exactly? Well, if we think about roller coasters as machines or or the kind of industry machines, industrial machines that process humans to deliver uh, one key ingredient, which is thrill, then being able to understand uh, how to generate uh, that experience of thrill is really important. So it isn't just about throwing people around in space over time. There is a real uh, art and a science to how people's bodies and minds um, respond to to movement, to theming, to all sorts of factors which uh, come into play when you're designing a roller coaster. What happens to our bodies when we're on a roller coaster? I know how I experience it, but talk us through that part of it. Yeah, well, maybe a, a, a quick 101 in, uh, in uh, how human emotions work. Um, I mean, thrill itself isn't an emotional state. It is the movement of emotional state from something which is quite low, let's say being bored, being unhappy, to be to another state which is being ecstatic or excited. So there's this sense of movement. And if you think about thrill, uh, sorry, if you think about emotions, there's two components generally, if, if you sort of look at it very simplistically. There's arousal, which we all know is uh, related to adrenaline, being your body gets pumped up and ready for action, your body's autonomic nervous system uh, fires up, uh, which is the flight or fight response. Uh, Your hands become sweaty, your pupils become dilated, your breathing quickens, your heart gets faster. So we're all getting ready to do something. And then there's this other component, which is, well, the scientific term is called valence, but it's actually pleasure. It's whether we like something or not. The scientists call it the hedonistic tone. And so these two components, and if you can create a rapid and large increase in pleasure and arousal at the same time so it's got to be big it's got to be fast then we get this sensation of uh of thrill and related to um to pleasure we get the release of dopamine combined with adrenaline we get this really heady mix and a real euphoric high which is so addictive and so compelling and in evolutionary terms this has meant that uh, we either get rewarded with thrill for evading danger or we get rewarded uh, thrill for actually going towards something so uh, so let's say towards food or uh, preventing us from being eaten. In fact, if you go back to the chimpanzees and the ape world, you know, the fact that we get sweaty palms when we're on rides, and that's why people call them white knuckle rides, because we hang on for dear life onto those bars, is an evolutionary um, development that we hang on to branches of trees as we're swinging through trees to avoid being eaten. So um, it's a real uh, primeval instinct it's probably one of the most valuable um, emotions-related traits, and roller coasters do, you know, provide thrill uh, incredibly efficiency uh, efficiently. I think they're probably something like twenty percent efficient. Some of the best coasters, when you think about. Um, 
cars and their um, their ability to convert uh, petrol or fossil fuels into motive force, they're around the same uh, percentage. So mm. roller coasters are actually incredibly efficient industrial machines at delivering a thrilling experience. Jonathan, as someone who designs and, and builds coasters, and you work exclusively with wooden coasters, just briefly talk us through that process, how, how you create a ride. Yeah. So... Um, obviously the number one priority is keeping everyone safe on the experience. Um, but you know, also while feeling as unsafe as possible, (laughs) um, I, I kid, but, but really we're in the business of maximizing thrill, right? And a roller coaster is a pretty simple machine. You, you lift people up to the top of a hill and you let gravity take them down. But my job as a roller coaster engineer is to make sure you have the most fun possible between the top and the brakes. <laughs> okay. Um, so, you know, when we develop a ride, we typically start by visiting the park and collaborating with that amusement park on the site that they have, where they want the ride to go, and how we can best utilize that to make something unique for that park. Um, we also need to consider what range of ages this ride is meant for. Um, you know, some, sometimes a park needs a, a, a high thrill experience that everyone or, or that only the, the most daring of guests will, will go on. Um, but oftentimes the park wants something that will be fun for the widest range of people, something that parents can ride with their kids as their kids first coaster. And those kids can grow up and ride with their kids as their, their kids' first coaster. And everyone can be having a fun time. We got this email from Scott who says, it may surprise some that water slides have caused more injuries than roller coasters, but it may not be a surprise given that many roller coasters have straps, something many water rides lack. And let's not forget that water in pools and water parks may also contain bacteria. And Francine, you've worked at water parks for much of your career. What are some of the unique challenges to designing a safe and exciting water experience? Well, gosh, there's there's so much that goes into it, and just as Jonathan has talked about the the the, the package of calculations that goes into a, a, a roller coaster, you have something very similar that goes into a water slide. What I will tell you that's different is is there's a reason there isn't a restraint on a water slide, and that is you're entering water at depth. So the last thing you want is somebody strapped into a vehicle going into water. So so that's that's one thing. So that's different. So you have to engineer the ride dynamics in a way where it's safe to not have a restraint. The other piece of it is that you're really reliant on the user, the person who's riding, to do the right thing. So there's rules and there's there's an attendant there that tells you what to do. And we're really relying on the guest to do the right thing. And so if they're holding onto the handles, they stay in the right body position, then they're going to have a safe ride. And that's how we design, we're designing a ride around the user. We're not necessarily designing around the vehicle. And so it's a, it's a, it's a different approach. But I will say that there are unique risks that go into water parks. Yes, there are germs that can be in water, and that's why there's swimming pool codes that keep water safe. There's also uh, ASTM standards that apply to water slides. And so when we utilize those and you can engineer them and test them and operate, maintain, and inspect them to those standards, you're you're generally going to have a safe ride. That's Francine Gonzalez. She's the chair of ASTM International's Committee on Amusement Rides and Devices. Francine, thanks for your time today. Thank you. In a moment, what does the future of roller coasters look like? And why do some of us uh, just not get in that line? We'll talk about the emotional experience of riding a roller coaster after the break. Stay with us. 
This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Carrie, who emails, In 2006, I rode the top thrill dragster at Cedar Point for the first time. It was terrifying, and it wasn't a coaster that if you got scared, you could walk through the train to the exit, so I had no choice. I cried, and my stomach was left back at the start after we took off. The dragster has since been retired, and it ruined roller coasters for me. I've been back to Cedar Point three times since then, and it wasn't as fun anymore. Now, Carrie, the last time I went to Cedar Point... (laughs) I rode Top Thrill Dragster and had the same experience. And for people who aren't familiar, if, if this is the one I'm, I'm remembering correctly, you basically, like the soul is snatched out of your body at this ridiculously high speed. You, you can't even scream because you don't have anything to speak with. It's just, you're just gone. And I, I was thinking about this, Brandon. There was this period in my life in my teens when I really loved roller coasters, hated them when I was a kid. Loved them into my 20s. And then the last time I went to Cedar Point, I think it was in my my early 30s, and it stopped being fun. It was just terrifying. I mean, what what happens if if you kind of lose that desire to be to be scared if you stop wanting the thrill? What's happening? Well, your um, desire for thrill does change um, over your lifetime. So I think there's a real sweet spot around um, your mid, uh, later teens to early 20s where your perception of risk is incredibly low, but your, um, your thirst, let's say, for new and unusual experiences is incredibly high. And again, this has got evolutionary advantages. So, you know, you shouldn't be too perturbed that, that things are changing over time. And in fact, you know, you may be able to start finding pleasure in certain rides and experiences that you might not have done when you were younger, but they might not be as extreme. But I like to think of uh, people who like thrill as sort of connoisseurs. So you can start to think of uh, thrill as a kind of fine wine, which you can start to look for subtle notes, start to appreciate other forms of, uh, you know, features of the ride. So it's all about the, the pleasure. So people often think about thrill just being related to that, uh, the adrenaline, the arousal, the excitement, which very much tracks the uh, changes in physical forces on the ride. So if you were to blindfold somebody, put them on a ride and to monitor their, their arousal levels, just even looking at their heart rate, that would track pretty closely the changes in G-forces. So we're not talking about, you know, you've got speed. Obviously, you talked about uh, top thrill dragster. You've got the change, the acceleration, then you've got the change in acceleration and the change in the change in, in the acceleration. And all those different factors create different types of experience. But yeah, it, it just happens that as you get older, 
you start to become a little bit more uh, receptive to 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 risk. But the other thing as well that they uh, that people have found is that even life events like uh, having a child can change your biochemistry, which will change your um, your response to to thrilling or risky situations. I, I you design the emotional experience of a roller coaster, and I'm specifically curious about anticipation because. Again, in that younger time in my life, when you're going up the hill or you're waiting for it to start, you're, yeah, your heart is elevated and it's kind of exciting because like, oh, what's going to happen now? And the last time I wrote it, I was just like, get me off. This is not, like, the anticipation wasn't enticing anymore. How does anticipation play into the experience you're building? Yeah, it's, it's very much uh, a similar art to um, the advertising world where, um, the very first moment we think about a ride, so this comes down to the marketing of new rides and uh, the artworking of those uh, those pictures. In fact, some of the rides I've been involved in in the UK, Wicker Man and 13 at Alton Towers, uh, one of the first things you try and do is going, well, what's this ride going to look like? How is it going to excite people? What are we telling them about it? Which we call the nugget. It's like, what's the strap line? It's got the most loops. It's got this, etc. So people are already building an image in their minds about this ride, why it's going to be so darn good. And then also with that, you might get some, unfortunately, if you had some bad experiences on rides going, I don't like loops, I was sick on that loop, or etc. So some bad connotations can start growing, you know, being developed, particularly later in life, uh, as you start to get more experience of the different things you like or don't like. So you start to bring anticipation becomes a kind of apprehension for some people, which can take, you know, you can train yourself through. I mean, like John, I'm uh, privileged to go on rides for, for work. And so one of the ways of, that, you know, I just go, right, if you look at a ride objectively and just go, it's just a whole bunch of loops, etc., and look at it from an engineering perspective, you can very easily get over those kind of uh, physiological or psychological fears uh, just by looking at at it as a beautiful piece of machinery. So I think there are lots of different ways to enjoy uh, a roller coaster uh, if you think that you're starting to lose the love for it. Mm. Brandon, you're working on the next big thing in roller coasters, what would prevent you know, getting hit in the head by a cell phone, and that's virtual reality coasters. How will that work? Yeah. Well, the if you think about the roller coasters and the fact that Every generation, we need uh, novelty. So what was a fantastic roller coaster for the previous generation may seem a little bit tame to the next. So it's, in marketing terms, there's always this arms race for the highest, the fastest, the most loops. And there's a certain limitation, uh, both from engineering and and from uh, what the human body can actually withstand. You know, there's only so much sort of G-forces that we can stand up, down, left, right, forwards, back, and rotating about all those axes. So one of the areas that I, I've been looking into, or our, our company, Studio Gogo, is looking at um, the use of virtual reality on old rides. So not looking at new ones, but looking at old rides and being smart with the use of uh, these G-forces. So we're combining VR with uh, simulator uh, technology. In fact, this is sort of areas that we've been patenting. And if you feel that you're doing, for example, uh, going forwards at 1G, if you actually get... Um, 
if you get visuals that make you look like you're going faster, then you can actually fool the body. It's the same with the rotations. If you're only sort of rotating 180 degrees in VR, you can make people think that they're rotating 360 degrees. So you can start to build up uh, rides that look are perceived to be much more extreme than they actually are. So you can take older rides, which are probably underperforming as far as their delivery of pleasure and arousal, introduce virtual reality and not only can you actually improve on the perception of those forces make it more thrilling but then you've also got the opportunity to add uh, storytelling theming etc through vr headsets so we're really interested in revitalizing older rides a little bit like adding those metal rails to aging wooden rides we're using vr and and as part of it still going to be a physical experience because when you're on a roller coaster every part of your body is is engaged Absolutely. It's always, I don't think you could dispense with the, the physical experiences, but I do think that the, there are some fantastic roller coasters, um, which it would be an absolute travesty to put VR headsets on because it's all about the view and the vista. It's about sharing experiences with other people. Um, so I don't think VR technology needs to be applied to everything, but I'm kind of interested in those lower intense, intensity rides that might just value or get this little bit of uplift from the addition of technology so yeah you absolutely do need to keep the physical ride in fact we're touring one of our most successful rides our playground swings with vr headsets it's the old uh, haunted swing experience you're swinging backwards and forwards a little bit on our rides you feel that you're doing loop the loops and then spinning off into space and people howl with laughter and and absolutely scream with fear and that's the kind of response we're looking for but it absolutely relies on maintaining that physical uh, sensation and exploiting it more using the technology. Jonathan, of all the coasters you've designed, which one's your favorite? Oh my gosh, that's a really hard, that's like asking what your favorite kid is. <laughs> but um, there is one ride that sticks out as one that I absolutely love. Um, it was one of the most difficult rides that we've, we've ever made. It's at a park in Stockholm, Sweden called Grunelin. It's a beautiful waterfront park but there, it's a kind of a small park, and they just jam-packed this park full of rides. And when they came to us, they said, oh, we would love to do a coaster with you guys, but we're just, we're out of room. We don't have room for a ride. So what we ended up doing to work around that constraint was we built this wooden roller coaster on top of a building. So it's on top of a dark ride on the roof, and it weaves in and out of three other roller coasters in the park. <laughs> and so... While you're riding this ride, not only are you on super tight track, but you're also having near misses with the coasters nearby. And it was just an awesome way for us to turn something that the park thought was a, a constraint, a disadvantage, into a huge advantage that made that ride unique and unlike anything else. Well, if anybody gets to that, uh, that coaster, let us know what the experience was like. We've been talking to Jonathan Wooker. He's an engineer for the Gravity Group. That's a wooden roller coaster design firm. And Brendan Wooker, a thrill engineer and the director of Studio GoGo. That's a ride design company. Jonathan, Brendan, it was great to talk to you both. Thanks. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.